Growing up with a piece of music is something very special for many instrumentalists, and that's something that violin soloist Rachel Barton Pine has done in this new recording along with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, led by Teddy Abrams, taking on two violin concertos, Dvorak's and Cachaturian's. I had an opportunity to speak with Rachel Barton Pine about this new release from Avi Records. Hi, I'm Kurt Hosworth, host of Class Eclectic for Public Radio 90, and this is a Class Eclectic Connection. First of all, good to have you on the line, Rachel. Great to be here. Yeah, so when people hear your name, um, they usually think of a, a jaw-dropping violin performance, at least I do, um, <laughs> and I'm, sh- I'm sure many people know that you've played with just oodles of ensembles, you've played through many masterworks, and you've also collaborated with many contemporary composers as well. Uh, also, you've got your own foundation uh, for musicians, uh, and you've also spearheaded the music by black composers. Um, so with that all being said, um, uh, you know, you've, you've uh, done these concertos for a long time. They mean a lot to you. Uh, I, I read that you learned these at the age of 15, and you, you still play them regularly. Uh, do you feel that you've grown with these pieces? Have they become a part of who you are? Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that defines, you know, a great masterpiece is that you can always find more in it. And, you know, it almost makes it intimidating to put anything down on album because you realize that you've put in, you know, years, if not decades of work into it and <laughs> countless hours, and you have all these thoughts about it that you want to share with the world. And then you think to yourself, hmm, in 10 years, I know that if I keep working hard, I'm going to play it better yet. So how can I make my recording today? <laughs> but yeah. ultimately, ultimately, you know, you got to just do it. And um, But mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've definitely deepened my relationship every time I've returned to them found more nuances and uh, you know and just working with different musicians of course always broadens your horizons but one of the things that you know is special about a great piece of music is that no matter how many times you play it you never burn out on it you never get bored with it it Mm. always feels fresh and you always have that that sense of excitement of wow I get to play this cool piece just like you did when you first encountered it and you know uh, as familiar as they are I still feel like oh I'm so lucky to get to do this and that kind of answered my next question about you know what did they mean to you when you first played them compared to now it sounds like you've grown a lot with them and you've you've learned the different nuances as you've uh maybe gained your own skills as a violinist over the years and like you said you've played with all these different ensembles and their interpretations of things so maybe dovetailing off of that with these concertos in your mind and being a part of your life for so long uh how did the collaboration process go with you and Teddy Abrams along with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra did you approach Teddy uh, and the orchestra with these? Uh, how'd the ball get rolling on this project? Yeah, so th- actually what had happened is I was going to record a very different pair of concertos. I won't spill the beans on wh- what it was because mm. I actually hope to make that album in the near future and I don't want anybody mm. to scoop me on it. It's a pairing that I'm very excited about. But in a any case, um, yeah, the conductor that um, I'm still hoping to do that pairing with, um, he had a conflict come up at the last minute. So mm. uh, basically, I didn't want to do that pair, of, that same pair of concertos with a substitute conductor 
director. I wanted to save it for him. And I had the studio, the producer, the orchestra all ready to go for these particular dates. And I thought, well, I don't want to just lose the session. So maybe I can record different concertos. And I had, you know, as you said, I played the, the um, Dvorak and Kachaturian, you know, many times over many years. But um, that particular year, I'd happened to play them both in the same season. And it had really struck me that each one is so inspired by the Eastern European folk music, um, Czech mm. and Armenian, respectively. And even though they're from different centuries, they, they both are just totally infused with these you know, melodies and rhythms of this, this folk music spirit. And I, I felt like they really went together. They were both on my wish list of pieces that I do hope to record in my lifetime, but I had never thought of pairing them until that year. And then with this session suddenly opening up, I thought, okay, that's the pair. I'll do those guys. So it was really <laughs> a very spontaneous decision and then we obviously had to grab a conductor and I'd heard wonderful things about Teddy Abrams and he was able to squeeze it into his schedule. He literally had like two mm. days off, flew to Europe, did the session, flew right back and, um, <laughs> you know, was just so, um, you know, enthusiastic and did such a great job. And it was it was really a pleasure. So, yeah, so it all ended up coming together. And, you know, sometimes the the plans that come up at the last minute end up being the best plans. <laughs> My goodness, that sounds like a busy time. But like you said, too, when you've got people that are, you know, at the top of their game and they're they're full of energy about these kinds of projects, then that can just snowball into the energetic process of recording it then, too. So that's great. And like you said, too, these are kind of two different flavors of concertos, um, you know, both having the traditional folk music involved weaving throughout. Um, I had a, a little bit of a question before we maybe dive into talking about the music a bit itself. Um, you're known for also sharing you know, the history of the music, or the, of the music and the, com- the composers with your concerts as you're presenting these grand works. Did you ever consider yourself to be kind of an ethnomusicologist or do you feel that should just be part of someone who presents music like this? Well, I mean, every performer has their own approach. And um, I was lucky to be homeschooled from third grade onwards at the suggestion of my elementary school principal, believe it or not. Pretty pretty mm. radical thing. Um, mm-hmm. I always have to explain that I did not get expelled. Um, he just suggested <laughs> that I discontinue going to school. Um, mm-hmm. But it really, and ironically, made my childhood more normal because I had time to do all my practicing and play with kids in the afternoon, which I wouldn't mm. have been able to do with a traditional school day practicing after school. But in any case... Um, Homeschooling gave me the the flexibility to pursue my own interests and dig deep, and that really started spilling over into my approach to music. If I was curious about something, um, I didn't have to stick to a set curriculum. The idea was as long as I knew it all by the end of high school, it didn't matter what order I learned it in. So I mm. could just go over to the library and spend all day. You know, what, the footnotes from one book would lead me to the next book, and you know, just mm. learn about different composers and musical traditions and styles and um, historic violinists and. You know, it's so um, I've really retained that that love of learning throughout my career. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of a research geek. Uh, give me a good dissertation with lots of footnotes. And that's my beach reading. Um, so a <laughs> little silly, but um, but it, it just, you know, it's fun to, to learn about all this different stuff. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I love to write my own program notes for my CD booklets. And that's the sad thing with, the, you know, the 21st century model of streaming, because nobody mm. gets to read your line. Liner notes as much anymore. Right, right. 
they have to do their own kind of digging, which uh, is great to hear that you do that yourself. It almost sounds like you had a little bit of a, a pre-college experience being able to dive into those subjects at your own pace. Uh, and like you said, as long as you know it at the end, you're all good. Uh, so with these concertos, uh, just talking briefly about the Dvorak, the concerto opus uh, 53, it has those Slavic themes and rhythms. It's got the European style, and it's uh, kind of got the romantic feel to it. Um, I feel like this one's a little bit more of a traditional concerto form, while the, the Kachaturian concerto has a little bit more space for you to uh, maybe perform more of the ornamentation, and then you get kind of the bombastic reaction from the orchestra. Um, having these two concertos pair like this, is that a fair assessment of um, kind of the, the two sides of the concerto? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great comment. Um, so I, I want to answer, answer that on actually two different um, levels. So first of all, in terms of the violin writing, certainly Dvorak uses the melodies and rhythms of the Czech folk music, but the approach to the sound is is very much in this European romantic type of style. Kachaturian actually goes one step further, and um, his inspiration for color comes from you know the traditional music of, of the people of the Caucasus. He grew up in the country of Georgia, but of was of course of Armenian descent and you know his he listened to a lot of Georgian and Armenian and Azerbaijani and all these different kinds of music and you'll hear these just crashing cymbals you know almost over the mm-hmm. top but you know coming from a real place of authenticity and you know he'll have these um, woodwinds playing these snaky lines with lots of melismas and of course adds lots of um, you know traditional style ornaments to the violin part uh, so it's yeah it's really fun in that regard um, actually struck Actually, the Dvorak is perhaps even more radical than the Kachaturian, which has you know three clearly defined movements. Um, the idea of returning to the uh, opening material of the first movement, you know, again at the end after a cadenza, you know, Kachaturian sticks to that format, which was you know goes way back to the classical period. But Dvorak had much more of a free-flowing tone poem approach to his first movement. It's almost like a stream of consciousness. He never does return to the opening material, and he actually blends right into the second movement. Of course, this has been done with concertos like Mendelssohn, but when um, Dvorak did it, he didn't you know, have a, a sense of, of closure with his first movement. There was no, no finality to it, um, and then you know, kind of a tag like Mendelssohn did. He actually just kind of wound it down until you ultimately just morph into the second movement. And his, hmm. um, his well, I don't want to say dedicatee, because he never did dedicate it to him, because the guy never performed it, but um, Joseph yeah, Joachim Brahmsen. Yeah, Brahms' best friend and collaborator, the greatest violinist in Europe, you know, who had played lots of Dvorak's chamber music and had liked his his writing. Um, Dvorak, like many um, composers before him, was writing a concerto for Joachim, and but Joachim was such a strict traditionalist that he couldn't handle this, um, you know, very you know kind of contemporary approach to the first mm-hmm. movement that Dvorak had come up with with the the, the formal structure or lack thereof, and so Joachim, um, after years of going back and forth and revisions and ultimately sort of ghosting him, you know, not returning his letters. And Dvorak finally got the clue that Joachim just was blowing him off, you know, Mm -hmm. and then handed it to a young Czech soloist, Andracek, who um, played it brilliantly and performed it all over. And of course, it got a great reception. And clearly, Joachim was wrong. And it was a good piece after all. But (laughs) uh, yeah, such a 
such a drama, you know. <laughs> and and Kachaturian, on the other hand, you know, wrote his whole entire concerto in just three months. He was very um, kind of creatively inspired by the impending birth of his child, and he said he would, the music flowed out of him in a state of great joy. And he just wrote this whole piece in three months, handed it over to David Oistrakh, who loved it, and everything was smooth sailing. So it's a real contrast <laughs> in seeing the different ways that the the composer violinist relationship can unfold. And I I often think about this, you know, these different historic stories when I'm working with composers myself and, you know, yeah, try to try to make sure that I don't act like Joachim did and blow the composer <laughs> off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're all trying to reduce the amount of drama in the world at this point, And it's good that mm-hmm. uh, that's represented, though. Historically, you get to get a little more of the feel on the, the history, the background of how these pieces came together. Rachel Barton Pine, again talking about Dvorak and Kachaturian, the Violin Concertos, the new release along with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra from Avi Records. Rachel, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your words and your music. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. The Class Eclectic Connection is a production of Public Radio 90 WNMU-FM Marquette, a service of Northern Michigan University. You can listen online at wnmufm.org or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Kurt Hosworth. Thanks for listening.